Please turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We uh, we're actually moving along in this uh, great letter of Paul to the Roman Christians. I feel like I'm uh, leaving something behind that I don't want to leave behind. I always feel that way when I finish something like this and I always feel like what I really need to do is go back and start over. But I'll spare you that. We're moving on to chapter 7. And so let me invite you to read as we move on. Chapter 7, beginning at verse 1 and reading the first six verses. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brethren... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us somehow this morning. Help us to see that we've been given over into the embrace of a new lover who loves us with a true and everlasting love, who loved us even before we were given over to him, who loved us enough that while we were yet sinners, he died for us to rescue us from the awful, oppressive husband, the law. Jesus, help us to embrace you. Help us to see you as our great lover. Grant your spirit that we can come to terms with your word and benefit from it today. We ask in your name. Amen. I've already sort of given you the punchline, I guess, in the prayer. But as we move uh, into this seventh chapter, we're actually continuing. Paul is continuing with the things that he's been talking about through chapter 6. And, and let me kind of give you the big picture thing here before we get into the details of it. And let me use an illustration that may be helpful to you to sort of think about what it is Paul is seeking to to convey here the truth that he's seeking to convey. Two months from tomorrow, Boo Graves and I will get on an airplane in Miami and we'll fly to Tanzania. You knew I was going. You may not have known that Boo is going, but Boo is going, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm excited about it. And when we get there, we will be in Tanzania and we'll have a travel visa granted to us, given to us, by the nation of Tanzania. And we'll have to go through customs. And while we are in Tanzania, 
We will live as aliens. We'll live as aliens. We'll have to eat their food, drink their bottled water, even bottled water only, trust me. We'll take baths in their not bottled water. We'll live as aliens, listening to their language, observing their customs. But we're only there temporarily living under that visa. We both, each of us, will carry a United States passport. And the United States passport is a mark of identification. It tells me that I live under the laws, enjoying the freedoms of another land. And when that plane touches down in Miami on our return trip, we'll be on the ground with several hundred people, and that group of several hundred people will actually form two groups. And one group will go in the direction of the counters that say, United States citizens. And we'll hand our passports over to the immigration or customs official, And the first time this happened, the first time I came back from Tanzania and gave my passport to this woman, she stamped my passport, she folded it up, she handed it back to me, and she said, Welcome home. Welcome home. Folks, in some small way, that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to convey to us who have believed in Jesus and trusted ourselves to Jesus, the implications of all of this, we are resident aliens here. We live under the authority, enjoying some of the privileges and some of the blessings of a greater nation, a greater king. Paul is telling us that we have been transferred, to use the language of Colossians chapter 1, he's telling us that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's another one of those passive verbs. Go read Colossians 1. It's something that has happened to me. It is something that God has done. He's transferred me from one kingdom into another kingdom, and he's given me a passport that marks me, that identifies me as belonging to that kingdom. I'm a citizen of that realm. And I've begun to enjoy all of its liberties and freedoms. But there is a great day coming. There's a great day coming when the customs official will be Jesus. And he will receive my passport and say, welcome home into the new heaven and the new earth, into the joy of your father. Welcome home, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Welcome home. That's what Paul is telling us in this letter. And when you come to the seventh chapter, he's using yet another metaphor to describe this for us. Now let me give you three hooks to hang this passage on. It's fairly customary for us around here, for those of you who are fairly new, to to find three hooks or four hooks or some pegs to hang these passages on. And I want to give you three hooks, okay, three pegs. And the first of them is this, the law and the Jew. 
the law and the Jew. How did the Jew understand the law? The second is this, what the law does. What the law does. The law and the Jew. Second, what the law does. And then third, what the law can't do. What the law can't do. The law is clearly an issue in this letter to the Romans. Paul has touched on it, sort of skipped over it, glanced off of it again and again and again as we come to this seventh chapter. But here in this seventh chapter, he's taking on this business of the law, this matter of the law. And he wants to address those in his audience so that they have a proper understanding of their relationship to the law as Christians. Okay? As Christians. So it's a big, big deal, a very important thing. And let me mention just a couple of things because what we want to do is try to get into Paul's mind and into the minds of those who are listening to this letter be read, who are hearing it read so that we can understand exactly what it is that Paul is after. Let's remember that this letter is addressed to Christians in Rome and that the people in these churches, and there probably were multiple churches, it wouldn't have been like this. They didn't have buildings. There wouldn't have been 150 to 170 people in a building on a piece of property. They would have been in homes, most likely, or some other rented place where perhaps they would have met. But these Christians who are meeting in these homes are of both Jewish ethnicity and Gentile ethnicity. They come from a Jewish background and they are Gentile converts from paganism to Judaism. So there are Jews here who have heard this gospel. They have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've embraced him or they're inquiring about him. And for those who have embraced him, they understand him to be the long-awaited Messiah. For those who are wondering about this gospel that Paul is writing about and that they've heard about, they wonder if he is the long-awaited Messiah. And then there are these Gentiles in the mix. Again, probably mostly converts, but some seekers. Some people who are seekers as well, who are drawn for some mysterious reason to the monotheism and to the morality of the Jewish religion. Be a real uh, sort of practical and timely and current about this. And again, you, you, you read a little bit of history and you, you kind of get some windows into the state of the culture and what was going on at the time that Paul wrote this letter. And it was probably the, the case that people were looking at the declining Roman culture around them, looking at it becoming increasingly immoral, and they were saying, we need to find a place for our kids. We need to find a place for our kids. We need to find a place that upholds traditional moral values. We need to find a conservative place. See, they were familiar with the sort of the catalog of sins, if you will, the catalog of misbehaviors that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. If you remember the end of Romans chapter 1, the last few verses, he sort of summarizes what is going on, what's evident and prevalent in the Roman Empire. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, pride, insolence, parental disobedience, ruthlessness. I mean, what you have described there is kind of the unraveling of culture. And in the midst of that, and probably for a whole lot of reasons, in addition, there were these Gentiles who were drawn 
to the monotheism of Judaism, to the morality, to the ethic of Judaism. They wanted to be protected. They wanted to withdraw from the deteriorating culture around them. And so guess what was valued? The law. The law. Let's have good, strong laws behind which we can protect ourselves, within the gates of which we can keep ourselves safe. The law becomes a stabilizing and steadying thing. It gives definition to life. It orders life. It simplifies life, doesn't it? I mean, anytime you say no to a particular thing, or you say yes to a particular thing, you're ordering and organizing and simplifying life. Right? A whole lot of other decisions are made for you by virtue of the fact that you've got a good, strong law. But here's the other thing, the other thing that we want to know and remember and understand. In the Jewish mind, For Paul, who was himself a Jew, and for Paul, a preacher now of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has this very much in mind. He's very much aware of this as he writes this letter. Perhaps this will help you as you sort of reread Romans to understand why he says some of the things that he says. Paul was a Jew, understood the Jewish mind, and there are a couple of other things for a Jew, two things that were significant about the law. On the one hand, the law and obedience to it was the means by which a person gained acceptance with God. The law or obedience to it was a means by which a person gained acceptance with God, gained access to the promises, the blessings of covenant relationship and covenant fellowship. The law was a means to that end. How do we know this is the case? How do we know that that's what the Jews understood? Well, here's how we know this. If you go back and you read Acts, particularly the first half of the book of Acts, as the gospel begins to expand and as Paul begins his ministry to the Gentiles, Because you see, the gospel isn't for a particular nation. It is for the nations. And as Paul begins to proclaim this gospel, preach this gospel, Gentiles are converted to it. Gentiles are won over. And the first big theological controversy in the church, the first thing that provoked the first council, the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, is this. What do we do with Gentiles? What do we do with Gentiles? What do we do with Irish converts to the faith? What do we do with Galatians and Philippians and Thessalonians and Romans? What do we do with these people? And there was a strong tendency in the Jewish believing community out of which the gospel was sent to the whole world, there was a strong tendency among those first believers to say, it's okay if they become Christians, but they've got to become good Jews before they can become good Christians. 
In other words, they still need to observe the rite of circumcision according to the tradition of Moses. That's Acts 15.1. Jewish believers were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the tradition of Moses, you cannot be saved. And how did the church respond to that? See, this is the first big council. This is the church coming together to ferret this thing out, to understand how is it that a person can be saved and become a citizen of this kingdom and embrace and be embraced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church, the church in its response said, no, it is not required of Gentile converts that they be circumcised. Here's how. We are cleansed. And you can read Acts 15 to see this. Our hearts are cleansed by faith in Jesus, the Messiah. That's how our hearts are cleansed. That's how we gain access to the blessings of the covenant. Not by adhering to the particulars of the law. You see, that's, we say this over and over again, that's what is so thoroughly throughout this letter to the Romans. What is the good news for you, folks? What's the good news for me? The good news for me is that somebody has done something for me that I'm powerless to do for myself. Somebody has done something for me that I am powerless to do for myself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about reaching up. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about God reaching down. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what I do. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about what God has done. And I become a citizen of that kingdom, not by illegal immigration, not by going through the proper channels of immigration, You understand? Not by conforming to a standard, not by meeting some sort of standard, not by climbing over some hill or mountain. You see, I become a citizen of that kingdom as a gift offered to me by God because of what Jesus Christ has done, received solely, entirely by faith. That's how I gain access. That's what the church said in response. But there's a second thing, and it's crucial, and it actually has more application to us, to you and me here. Not only was it deeply ingrained in the thinking of Jews that I gained access by conformity to the law, but the second thing is that I maintain that standing through conformity to the law. I gain it by obedience. And I maintain it by obedience. You need the law to get in and you need the law to stay in. If you obey, God likes you, is pleased with you, smiles upon you. If you don't obey, you're out. And you see that so much in evidence, particularly in the Gospels. It's because of that understanding that you have this group of people that grow up. The Pharisees. Look, you know what Pharisees are? Pharisees are very determined and resolute people. Pharisees are people with strong wills. In any group, there's always a few of them. 
And they always do exactly what their parents tell them to do. And you know what the effect of that is? They look down their noses at the rest of us. And that's exactly what happened in the days of Jesus. The Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, these groups of people, the ones who were the theologians, the scribes, the ones who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards, the Pharisees, the ones who became the representatives of conformity to the law, and then the lawyers, the ones who had the the great privilege of ferreting out the particular applications of the law so that they could tell then the Pharisees to perform them well so that everybody could watch them perform well this group grows up in the midst of israel the pharisees and what do they do they look down their noses at everybody else and when jesus comes along and gathers about him tax collectors and sinners what do the pharisees say look at him associating with tax collectors and sinners good people don't do that You see, there was an in-group and there was an out-group, and it was all predicated upon this assumption that conformity to the law keeps you in. That's how the Jews tended to think about the law. And here's what Paul is going to argue through the rest of this seventh chapter. He's arguing for it here. He's going to continue to argue for it. He's going to say not only is it the case that we gain acceptance by the grace of God as a free gift given to us because of what Jesus has done, but we are maintained in that standing as a free gift on the basis of what Jesus has done. Do you remember Romans 6.23, Romans 6.23, the verse right before the beginning of this seventh chapter. You know, Romans 6.23 isn't a verse for non-Christians. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 is written to Christians for Christians, particularly in the context of this struggle of sanctification, where we are these uncompleted pieces of rock, where God the great craftsman is forming and shaping and producing things of exquisite beauty by his tender and powerful hand. Remember this, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life for you. This is Paul as one preacher puts it this is paul evangelizing the evangelized and reminding them that from start to finish it is the grace of god in jesus christ received by faith that gets me in and that keeps me in and so what paul is doing here he's using yet another metaphor to remind these folks of what it is that has happened to them. He's used two metaphors already to describe what has happened to the Christian. He's used the metaphor of death and resurrection back up in the early verses of chapter 6. What shall we say to them? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? See, I I really am not getting away from chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can that possibly be? Don't you know that you have died to sin just as Jesus died to sin and was raised to newness of life? You died and you've been raised. 
Why would you want to go back? It makes no sense. And then he uses the imagery as well of slavery and freedom. That's really in the latter part of chapter 6, verse 15 and following. You were slaves, but you see you've been brought out of that slavery. You've been liberated from that slavery. Your old connection to Adam has been severed, and you've been united to the new Adam, the last Adam, Jesus. And you are free from that slavery. And then he comes to this third metaphor, and it's the metaphor of marriage. And if we kind of think Paul's thoughts after him, if we actually think the thoughts of Jesus who inspired by his spirit, the Apostle Paul, to write these things and put these things on paper, if we seek to think God's thoughts after him, there's a bit of a mixing of metaphors here. But let's think about the imagery that he's using. Think about marriage and remarriage. Paul says, if a woman is married, this is verses 1 through 3, if a woman is married and the husband dies, she is free, free from the legal binding authority that that marriage has in her life. And because he has died, she is free to marry another. But then look at how he mixes the metaphor in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, okay, you have this metaphor of marriage, a woman who is married to a man. The man dies, the woman is free. But then he mixes the metaphor again and he throws in this business of death and resurrection again. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another. This is crazy. In this case, verses 1 through 3, it's the husband who dies and the woman is free to marry. In verses 4 and following, you have died and there's been a resurrection. And because that old life is over and a new life has begun, you are free to give yourself to a new lover. A better lover. A lover who loves you with an infinite love. A lover who in fact died so that he might come back to life and embrace you as his bride. Guys, it's challenging to think of yourself as a woman. I understand that. But you are the bride of Jesus, whom he has loved with an everlasting love. And think about this imagery of a husband and a wife. Who is this husband? This husband seems clearly to be the law. And what is this husband like? This husband is brutal, tyrannical, and oppressive. But you see, there is law that binds that woman to that husband. Jesus says that husband has died, you have died, everything has died, the law has died, you've been rescued out of that and you've been delivered over into the embrace of another. How did they think about the law? That's how they thought about the law. I need it to get in, I need it to stay in, but you know this is how the law really works. What does the law really do? 
Listen to Paul himself. We'll do this rather quickly. What does the law, in fact, do? Chapter 3, verse 20. Again, we're just retracing some steps and thinking Paul's thoughts after him, reminding ourselves of things that he said. Romans 3, verse 20. By works of the law will no one be justified, that is, accepted in his sight, because through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does the law do? It teaches me about sin. I can't be justified. I can't be accepted. I can't get in on the basis of the law because what the law, in fact, does is expose sin. It teaches me about sin. Paul is going to talk about this in these next verses, verse 7 of chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. What does the law do? I'll tell you what the law does. It exposes you. It reveals you. Not sin in some abstract sense. It reveals you personally, me personally. A couple of illustrations of this. I don't like for people to know what it is that I do on the golf course. Lots of reasons for that. But one of the reasons I don't like people to know what it is that I do is this. Whenever they find out what it is that I do, invariably they say to one another, we need to watch our language. Now, my response more recently, in more recent years, rather than just smiling, is simply to say, I'm not the audience. I'm not the audience. But you see what happens there are people, they have this perception that I'm a holy man, and when the holy man walks into the room, what are people immediately aware of? Their unholiness. A situation a number of years ago, this is a painful story to tell, but I, I was in a situation a number of years ago in which a woman in our congregation was having an affair and through an interesting sequence of events, I actually was able to get this person's phone number, and I called him. And I said, there are two things you need to know about me. And they may seem to be completely in contrast to each other. It may sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. And I have to tell you that this conversation was one of those Holy Spirit moments, okay? I'm not courageous enough or smart enough to have said the things that I said. Trust me. But I said, there are two things you need to know about me. Number one, I'm a shepherd, and a shepherd preserves the sheep, and you are the wolf. And here's the second thing. I am, I am an emissary of the peace of God, and you can be forgiven and restored to fellowship with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I'm both a defender and protector and an emissary of peace. And he said, I'm not a bad guy. And I said, yes, you are. This is adultery. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. Because there was no argument to be made, you see. This is, this is the law. What does it do? It exposes 
It tells me what's wrong with me. That's the first thing that it does. Here's the second thing it does, Romans 4.15. It doesn't get better, folks. It gets worse. When you think about the law and how the law functions in the mind of the Apostle Paul, the preacher of the gospel, it first exposes sin, and then second, Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath. What's that all about? All Paul is saying is that when you come face to face with the reality of a holy God who is at home in his universe, who is righteous, who does decree what it is that we are to be and to do, and you come face to face with that God and with his law, you come face to face with the fact that he is also a God who is just. And where there is law-breaking, there is a price that must be paid. There is a penalty. There's a penalty. I don't have time to go into this in great detail, but there is a movement afoot. It is pernicious. It is frightening and is counter to the explicit teaching of Jesus who spoke more about judgment and hell and wrath than any other person anywhere in the Gospels, there is a pernicious movement afoot that seems to want to suggest that judgment and wrath and the prospect of being eternally banished from the presence of God bearing in my body judgment for my sin is an illusion in the scriptures and not to be believed. And it is contrary to the teaching of Jesus. Sin brings wrath. And it brings wrath because God is righteous and just. And where there is lawlessness, there is a price that must be paid. And here's a third thing. Here's a third thing the law does. Rather than mitigating sin, you know what it does? It exacerbates it. It intensifies it. It stirs it up. It provokes it. Romans 5 verse 20. The law came in to increase trespass. To increase trespass. What does that mean? It stirs it up. Right? Hey, you've seen it. You've experienced it. I referred to it months ago. You know the sign that says, do not touch wet paint? At that time, there were three or four people whom I offended because I asked the congregation, have you ever touched the bench with a sign on it that says, don't touch wet paint? What attracts you to the bench? It's not the bench. It's the sign that says, don't touch. If the sign's not on the bench, you just walk away. You don't even know the bench is there. But once the bench is there with the sign that says, do not touch wet paint, everybody touches it. And there were four people who said, I wouldn't. And I said, I think you're a liar. And that's where I offended them. And it may not be the bench with a sign on it that says, do not touch wet paint, but I will guarantee you it's something else. What does law do? It stirs it up. Who hasn't looked at a little child and said, do not do that, and had that little child look you right back in the face and do the very thing that you've told them not to do? Too many parents with smiles on their faces in this room. Point made. Law stirs it up. And here's the fourth thing. 
And it's in this passage. It's in this passage. The fourth thing, Romans 7, 6, but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive. The law is bondage. It's not freedom. We think the law is freedom. We think we can build a fence high enough, wide enough, long enough to constrain behavior, and the law becomes bondage. You all know the story of Jean Valjean and Javert and how Javert has no place in his universe for grace because he is so imprisoned by the law. He can't imagine a place where sin could actually be forgiven, where the sinner would not be punished. He can't imagine such a place. He's been a moral conformist. He's done everything that he was taught to do, knew to do, had practiced, and he became a prisoner of law, and it killed him. It killed him. What does the law do? It exposes sin. It reminds me that there is a just and righteous God who takes sin seriously and who must punish lawlessness. It stirs up and provokes sin. It agitates it, and it leaves me held captive by it. And when Paul says, you are no longer under sin, but you are under grace, what he's saying to us is that I have been freed from the fears and the threats and the bondage that come from reckless, ruthless law. I've been set free from it. What is it that the law can't do? It can't free me. Only Jesus can do that, having fulfilled the law, having satisfied the law, having died in the place of the lawless. I can be free because of what Jesus did. The law can't free me. The law can't change me. It can't change me. It can't justify me and it can't change me. It can't do this work deep in my soul, deep in my heart that has to be done. It can't do it. All the law does is expose all the drudge that's down there. The law can't change me. Jesus can change me because he's gained victory over sin and death. And in coming to him who is the author of life, there can be real change for me. I can be different because Jesus, having fulfilled the law, has vanquished all of the penalties and punishments and terrors and fears and oppressiveness of the law, and he's been raised to newness of life to give me life. So we don't live, verse 6, we don't live under the old written code, but we live under the new life of the Spirit. The law can't free me. The law can't change me. And here's the last thing. The law can't motivate me. The law can't motivate me. Last little story. I'll try to do this quickly. Concerns my middle daughter. Barb thinks I've told you this story before. I don't think I have. 
but this will expose both her and me. Every once in a while, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. I may lose my job over this. I may get in some serious trouble with somebody, but please be patient. Every once in a great while, I like to enjoy a cigar. I'm in good company. Charles Spurgeon liked to enjoy cigars. In fact, D.L. Moody came to visit Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon came out of his house, looked down the steps at Moody coming up the steps. Moody looked up at him and said, You're smoking! And Spurgeon said to Moody, And you're fat. (laughs) And I'll quit smoking when you quit eating. Look, any good thing can become a bad thing, right? Well, my middle daughter came home from school one day. She got there ahead of her mother and me. She opened the refrigerator door. She found a cigar, and she smoked it. And I came into the house maybe 30 minutes later, and I could smell the smoke. And to make a very long story a little bit shorter, I could smell the smoke, and I asked Leslie about it, and she said, well, it must be on my clothes because Mrs. Detweiler's mother gave me a ride home from school, and she smokes. So then I walked out onto the patio, and out on the table out there was the plastic wrapper that the cigar had been contained in. And I said, Leslie, come here. I said, what's this? Well, clearly and obviously, her countenance fell. And I said, Leslie, we've done two things wrong here. What are they? She could think of one. She knew that she had smoked a cigar that she wasn't supposed to smoke. And I said, what's the other thing, Leslie? And then she realized she had done a second thing. She had lied. She would not told the truth. And then I said to her, Leslie, what is tomorrow? And the next day was a Saturday. And that Saturday, her fourth grade class was to decorate their classroom for Christmas and to eat pizza together at lunch. And I said, Leslie, what's tomorrow? And she collapsed. She knew what was coming. She'd stolen, she had lied, and she was going to suffer the consequence of her act of disobedience. And she wasn't going to be able to go to the party. And then I said, Leslie, I'm going to teach you something about grace. You can go to the party tomorrow. Because grace is always, I don't get what I do deserve. And I do get what I don't deserve. If you call my daughter this afternoon and ask her to tell stories about discipline in our household, I can't guarantee you this, but I am pretty sure that that will be one of the first two stories that she will tell you. And I want to ask you this. What constrains you to follow Jesus? Is it his laws or is it his love? Is it law Or is it Grace who says to you, you not only get the party tomorrow, you get the party for all eternity. You don't get what you do deserve because of the cross. 
you do get what you don't deserve because I've earned it for you. That's the gospel, my friends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, encourage the hearts of your people with this gospel that you've freed us from a tyrant. You've freed us from a bondage. And you've won us to yourself, the new and perfect lover who loves us with an everlasting love. Give us grace in the depths of our souls. Give us grace to comprehend this love and to be pushed more and more in your direction by it and because of it. We pray in your name. Amen.